Let us open the Word of God to Malachi chapter 3, the last book of our Old Testaments. Malachi to Moses, or Moses to Malachi, either way you look at it, the encompassing of 1,200 years or so of God's prophets sent to the church of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. The way that I have divided this book of four chapters up is to find ten lessons. We will find lesson number seven beginning at Malachi 3 and verse 7, running down through verse 12. And so I will read those verses to you as we open the Word of God and we'll seek to give the sense of these words and humble ourselves before what God has to say to us this morning. Malachi 3, 7. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground." Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. And amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lesson number seven from the book of Malachi. The apostle, the prophet, excuse me, the prophet points out that the nation of Israel, like their fathers, had gone away from the ordinances of God's worship. And he uses that word ordinances here in the seventh verse. And they had not kept those ordinances. It wasn't anything new for Malachi's generation because the Jews had been guilty of not keeping God's ordinances before. We get to read in the book of Judges and we get to read in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles of the times where there had to be revivals in the nation of Israel because the people had obviously left the proper worship of God. So he had to raise up either a judge or a king like Hezekiah or Josiah that would bring about revivals. Do you remember the great preaching service that we like to read about in Nehemiah chapter 8 where they read the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense, that chapter? It says that they had not kept the Feast of Booths For a thousand years. That was their fathers. The Jews were stubborn, a stiff-necked people, as the Lord describes them, and they hadn't kept the ordinances of God. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. When Baptists identify two ordinances, and we don't want to do that, I hope if someone were to ask you, what are the two ordinances of the New Testament church, 
that you would say, why do you limit it to two? What are you talking about? The typical answer is baptism and the Lord's Supper. But there's a whole lot more that God's ordained for us to do in New Testament worship in public and New Testament conduct in private than just baptism and the Lord's Supper. First of all, baptism isn't even an ordinance of the church. Do you know where they get the idea that the church has two ordinances? Do you want to know where it comes from? It's an abomination of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments that they believe are necessary for your salvation. The Protestants only claim two of them. Baptists only claim two of them. And so they take two of Rome's seven sacraments that they've exalted above the others, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Catholic Church, it's baptism and the Mass. We deny that. The Lord's ordained many other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14 says, For the Lord hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's an ordinance of the New Testament that gospel preachers should be fully supported by their congregations to preach that gospel. That is an ordinance. Everything that God appoints, commands, and charges His people to do is something He has ordained for them. So don't get caught up in that. As we began earlier this morning with Matthew chapter 28, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you includes a whole lot more than just baptism and the Lord's Supper. It includes hair length. It includes a work ethic. It includes the assemblies of God. It includes how you treat your spouse. It includes how you treat your boss. It includes how you treat your employees. It includes how you treat your government. These are all the ordinances of God for us in the New Testament. But these Jews had gone away from the God's ordinances and had not kept them. And yet, look what it says. And this should cause us great comfort and encouragement from God's words. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. And who's speaking? The Lord of hosts. The God of the universe. The captain of the Lord's hosts. In charge of all the angelic armies. He says, return unto me, and I will return unto you. Do you know how easy it is to serve our God? He is so forgiving, and He pardons so easily. If we would but repent, confess our sins, and turn again unto Him, He will turn again unto us. If we draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to us. That little sentence there in the middle of this verse, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 3. And I don't want to distract you from those words there in Malachi 3. But in Jeremiah 3, the Lord put it this way. They say, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's wife, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? Yes, that land would be greatly polluted. God thinks it's an abomination for a woman to have a man, then another man, then the first man. Plainly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and confirmed right here as being an abominable proposition. But the Lord says this, But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return unto me again, saith the Lord. We have such a great God that we serve. Isaiah 55 says that His thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. 
weighs as high as the heaven is above the earth. And it is describing His ability to forgive. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord is able to forgive and is able to forgive so easily, so fully, so quickly, and so thoroughly if we will repent, confess, and turn unto Him again. No one should ever be discouraged about going back to the Lord because He is so forgiving. Right. He is not like you. He is not like me. We, we would expect a pound of flesh from someone that has sinned repeatedly, but the Lord doesn't. Right. He's merciful and gracious. Right. And the text tells us, that though from your fathers you have not kept my ordinances, if you'll return to me, I will return to you, saith the Lord. I want you to notice that you can't be with the Lord when you're not keeping His ordinances. When you're with the Lord, that means you're keeping His ordinances. Though the Lord is so forgiving, I remind you that testing His long-suffering is very risky. Because there comes a point, you've already heard about it this morning, with the use of the word irremediable meaning that there is no remedy for your situation. The Bible says in Proverbs 29 and verse 1, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. It's irremediable. So don't test God about His long-suffering. These people were so wicked, this generation of atheists, but they said back to God, Wherein shall we return? What are you do trying to tell us that we need to return to you? We are your people. We're good Christians. We're good people. We're decent. How can we return to you? I wonder why the prophet brought the message that they needed to return. I wonder why the prophet brought the message that they hadn't kept God's ordinances. I wonder why he had done that. Why would they respond by saying, where do we need to return? And so the Lord points out, an example of an ordinance that they weren't keeping, and that was their giving. And so we have five verses about giving, and let's cover it rather quickly. You've heard these words before. Will a man rob God? Just the sound of those words is unnerving. Will a man rob God? Do you mean it's possible to commit B and E on the God of heaven? Can the Lord of hosts have B and E, breaking and entering, committed against Him? And yet He calls it robbing God. If you don't give God all that He deserves, if you don't give God all that He expects, if you don't give God all that He asks for, if you don't give God what He has ordained should be given, you're robbing God. And so the prophet addresses the nation, Ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You should know what a tithe is. It's 10% of your gross income. What's an offering? Giving above that. You already owe the 10%, so it doesn't impress the Lord when you give Him what you already owe Him. Offerings are special. They're what you give that's out of the free will offering as it's described in the Old Testament. The Jews, as a practice, gave 23 and a third percent. They had two annual tithes and a third tithe every third year. So the total they gave was 23 and a third percent. It provided what we pay in our taxes as well as the upkeep and maintenance for the temple and the worship of God led by the priests and the Levites. But this tithes and offerings, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. A tithe is 10% and an offering is something above that under Old Testament way of thinking. Now we don't require a tithe in the New Testament in the same way that they required a tithe in the Old Testament because a tithe in the New Testament is not taught for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
God's men gave tithes long before Moses brought down the idea of a tithe from Mount Sinai. Abraham and Jacob both tithed 10%, and it's described in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham gave 10% of all to whom? To Melchizedek. So there we have the first tithe as early as Genesis chapter 14, and Moses wasn't to come for 430 years. Then Jacob told the Lord when he got up that morning after sleeping on a rock and seeing a stairway up into heaven with angels ascending and descending, he said, Lord, if you'll take care of me and bring me to my father's house, I'll give you a tenth of all that you give me. So there we have another tithe. Somebody will say, and I get the, I get this all the time. I, I get this regularly is what I mean. There's no tithe in the New Testament. See, they're rebelling against the tithe. They don't want to give. And so they find that there isn't a tithe in the New Testament. Well, if that is how we reason, then parents shouldn't spank their children because there's no spanking taught in the New Testament. No one should talk about the joys of marriage because there's no marital joy or pleasure described in the New Testament. It's in the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. And we could just keep going this way if we wanted to do that. But we're not going to do that. We trust the Word of God. And so because they can't find it in the New Testament, they give themselves an excuse that if they drop a 20 in an offering plate, they're giving. There's a God in heaven. And you know, dropping a 20 in the offering plate when you made 1200 that week, it should be 120 plus an offering. If you love the Lord. But anyway, those, those, that's tithes and offerings. When you read in the Old Testament free will offerings, you understand that's an offering of somebody's free will. It's not required. It's not expected. It's not commanded. They're just bringing it because they want to. A tithe isn't because you want to. A tithe is because you have to, because a tithe, a tithe is what God expects as a minimum. Now, I'm not going to go chase this rabbit very far, but you have been taught that you ought to think with a little bit of a mathematical mind when you pay your tithe to make sure that you're honest before the Lord. Because remember, if you're in a 30% tax bracket and you give 10%, you've really only given 7 And if you don't understand that, just think about it. Write me. I've taught you before about it. There's math involved in giving in a country that subsidizes your giving. Enough about that. Talked about it before. If you would like to hear further about that, I'll be happy to talk to you about insurance paid for by your employer, about 401ks, and all that should go into uh, your gross income, and what happens when you claim your giving on your tax return and you get a subsidy from the government through reduced taxes because you claim your giving. We can talk about that. But I just want you to remember, he's a great king, he's a great God, and you ought to be circumspect in the matter of giving. There's no money that's easier spent for a person who loves the Lord than giving. Right. It should be his favorite check of the month, his favorite check of the week. Would to God we could make more money so that we could give more. Don't you think that way? Why don't you think that way? Giving to the Lord is just a wonderful thing to do. It's one of the easiest acts of worship. Just pull out the pocketbook and do something with it. And you get to give to the Lord and He receives it and He considers it important. And in the last book of the Old Testament, when He's wrapping everything up and it's the final warning to Israel, what does He bring up? Giving. Verse 10. No, verse 9. We're verse 9 before we get to verse 10. Ye are cursed 
with a curse. Boy, he's already cursed the priests in chapter 2, hasn't he? He's cursed these people right now in chapter 3 for their lack of giving. And this book in the whole Old Testament is going to end with what word? Curse. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. God had cursed their means of production so that they were not getting ahead. You know, when God curses your income earning ability, when God curses your job, when God curses your business, you're not going to go anywhere. It's a horrible thing when God curses a man financially. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that we were in the book of Haggai, and we saw that they had not built the Lord's temple, so the Lord had cursed them there. And he said, consider your ways. You earn wages, but you're putting it into a bag with holes in it. No one ever gets ahead when they try to cheat God. But I love their reasoning, don't you? (coughs) I love their reasoning. I can't afford to give. When I'm making more money, I'll give. You can't afford not to give. Because if you don't give, God's going to curse your income-earning ability. And that's what He had done here in verse 9. Now verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into my storehouse, into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith. Two things. This meat in the Lord's house is what Nehemiah had identified over in Nehemiah chapter 13, that the provision for the priests and Levites was not being given. And so he corrected that in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah was basically a contemporary with Malachi. They were not providing the maintenance for the priests and the Levites. So the priests and the Levites were having to go and provide for themselves. And thus the worship of God was suffering because they weren't able to dedicate themselves to it full time. But the Lord says, prove me now herewith. He just doesn't call it robbing God. And he just doesn't say, I have cursed you. (coughs) But he says, prove me. If you'll give, and remember a tithe is what is due. A tithe is what is expected. If you'll give, I'll open the windows of heaven. Prove me. Try me. I dare you. Test me, is what the Lord says about giving. And I'll open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. This is how God deals with His people. This is how God deals with His church, and it's a wonderful way that He deals with us. We already owe Him. I appreciate R.G. Letourneau. And maybe I should buy a couple copies of his book so that some of you can read a little bit about him. But he's the man that gave 90% to the Lord, kept 10% for himself, and ended up a very rich man and started a Christian college in Texas. It's Letourneau Christian School, and it's a school for Christian engineers. He has 289 patents to his name for heavy earth-moving equipment. He's been dead maybe 20 20 or 30 years now, but... uh, He built some fabulous equipment during World War II. 70% of all heavy equipment was built by Letourneau Industries. This man was asked about how in the world could he give 90% of his money away to the Lord in his homespun way. He said, I never think about it as giving my money to the Lord. I think about how much of the Lord's money am I keeping for myself? And I love the man. I love his example that he's given that's in our culture and nation. 
And it's known for anybody that wants to go to a Google search box and type in R.G. Letourneau, you can read about this man and his giving. But see, R.G. Letourneau and his wife had figured something out, that you can't outgive the Lord. And so the Lord here is challenging His church of the Old Testament to prove me now. If I won't open you the windows of heaven. Now, is there anyone here this morning that doesn't really believe that this is true? Is there anyone here this morning that if I were to bring tithes and offerings to the Lord and to do it cheerfully as the Lord expects His giving to be done, that God doesn't really open up windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you can't receive? Is there anybody here that doesn't really believe that? Well, I've got a Bible story for you. You need to go home and read 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7 where you can read about the famine that took place in Samaria, where they were eating their own children, and where they were eating at the marketplace, you went to buy two things. You could either buy a cab of dove's dung to eat, or you could buy an ass's head so that you could go home and cook that thing and carve the little bit of meat off it with a spoon. The things they were eating in Samaria, the siege was so bad, dove's dung, ass's heads, and their own children. And Elisha the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter, 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 1 said, about this time tomorrow, a bushel of wheat's going to sell for a nickel. And a helper of the king of Samaria said, if the Lord were to open the windows of heaven, that couldn't happen. And Elisha turned to him and said, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat of it. Did it happen in 24 hours? Amen. Had the prices of commodities fallen so much that you could, I'm, I'm converting to American terms, you could buy a bushel of wheat for a nickel? Yes. Commodities had fallen that much because some lepers had gone outside that city and found that the enemy that had besieged that city had entirely disappeared and left all their foodstuffs. And so the whole city went out and had more than they could even eat. But that helper of the king, his assignment was to keep the gate of the city and he was trampled by the people as they went out and brought back in all the wealth. He was trampled. Why was he trampled? Because he didn't believe that God's able to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. Right. All other, th- listen to me, all other things being equal in your life. If you cheerfully give unto the Lord, you will never be able to outgive him. He will always outgive you. You've heard me say many times, R.G. Letourneau's answer to the question, how in the world can you still be rich, giving away 90%? He says, well, I shovel it to the Lord as fast as I can, and he shovels it back as fast as he can. Do you remember? But he's got a bigger shovel. And R.G. Letourneau knew about big shovels. The biggest front-end loader just rolled off an assembly line in the last few months, 70 cubic yards. A high lift front end loader. You ought to see it when the 70 yards are fully extended, three times the height of the machine lifting it. R.G. Letourneau. R.G. Letourneau, when you see those uh, oil drilling rigs in the Gulf of Mexico, who would invent something that big that would do a job like that, dropping a pipe down through water of great depths and then into the ground to bring up oil? R.G. Letourneau. But anyway, he's just a great example of giving. I hope I gave you something that you can go read. See, nobody has to believe a pastor anymore. All you have to do is know where to find the Google box on your homepage. Bring the tithes in and prove me. 
prove me. A while ago with the men, I talked to you men about onesies. Have you ever played a onesies game with the Lord? All other things being equal in your life, if you've been giving 10%, try 11 for a while. Not just to be greedy, but he says, prove me. I happen to know a man in Christ that's tried it for a number of decades, and the Lord's amazing. The Lord is flat out amazing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. He doesn't owe us anything for our giving because we're only giving what He already expects and deserves from us. But He's still as glorious in His ability to outgive. Thank you, Lord. Verse 11, and then He'll do this. Not only will He pour out a blessing you can't receive, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. The competitors and the negative things that take up your cash flow, God will rebuke them and stop them. Oh, now, now mathematically, we're getting a pretty neat equa- equation going on here. Right. Oh, yes, we are. We're having income increased. We're having expenses decreased. Oh, and if you're having expenses decreased on income that's being increased, you're getting a geometric return. It's just fabulous when the Lord intervenes on your part. And so here's the prophet in a book of curses. And these people have been cursed, but the Lord has said, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. And how could they return? Just by giving. Would they be, would they be worse off for their giving? You're never worse off for obeying the Lord in any part of your life, in any commandment God has given you. If you will do it, you will be blessed and you will be better off for every commandment. His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are the recipe for success and prosperity. And so those negative things, if you're in an agricultural society of verse 11, the Lord says, I'm just going to rebuke them. And I'm going to stop them from happening. And who's talking? The Lord of hosts is talking. And it's going to be so obvious that the nations around you are going to call you blessed. Verse 12, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Who's talking? The Lord of hosts. You say, why do you keep bringing that up? Because like as I tried to tell you, the little book of Malachi is denser with the title, The Lord of Hosts, and any other book in the Bible. There's 24 uses of that title in this tiny little book. I like that, because I like that title about the Lord of Hosts. When we sing any of our songs, and we get to the words, Lord of Sabaoth, and we say, what's that O in there for? I thought he was the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12. It's not talking about him being the Lord of the Sabbath. That little O in there makes a difference. Do you know what difference it makes? It's the Lord of hosts. And so when you see that little O, get excited because you're you're singing something even better than Him being Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of hosts. Praise His glorious name. What a a God. All nations shall call you blessed. Was Israel blessed when they gave? Oh, unbelievable. Every man sat under his fig tree and tried to figure out what he was going to do between eating sessions. That's what you're doing under a fig tree. Trying to think, what am I going to do? Has America ever been great? Was there a time when America was great? Did America give for the preaching of the gospel, the maintenance of God's ministers, the spread of His word to all nations? It's a wonderful thing. There it is, giving. That's one of the ordinances. That's an example to us. You know, the New Testament teaches about giving. The New Testament teaches about a whole lot of other things. We want to remember what the Lord's taught. We want to humble ourselves before the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all things that his apostles wrote down for us, in every part of our lives, we should obey those things because when we don't, God curses us with a curse. Right. 
And it's horrible when God curses with a curse. We want His blessing. He can take away the devourer. He can open the windows of heaven. He can just do miraculous and marvelous and wonderful things in any part of your life when you fully humble yourself before Him and do what He has said to do and you prove Him. Prove me now herewith. The Lord's challenging them to a giving contest. Who will win? The Lord will win. Thank you, Lord. Let's go to the next lesson. Lesson number 8, verses 13 through 15. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. These are stout words. What does the word stout mean? It means fat, arrogant, and proud, presumptuous, profane words. Your words against me have been stout. They've been fat with arrogancy. They've been proud words, says the prophet to the nation. Brethren, we had it addressed to us this morning already from Psalm 95 about looking at circumstances. And a verse was quoted from the book of Ecclesiastes that says if you only look at the circumstances of life, you will not be able to tell whom God loves and whom God hates. Because God allows the wicked to have some blessings in this life, and God does bring some afflictions in the lives of His righteous people. So you shouldn't judge by circumstances. These people were judging by circumstances. Here we've been putting some money in the offering plate. Nothing good's happened for me. Every year when I sit down and make a strategic plan for the farm, we never bring in as much as I thought we were going to bring in. And we've kept your ordinance. We've showed up at church most of the time. When the plate was passed, we dropped something into it. Ever heard anyone like that? Have you ever heard anyone real close to home talk like that? Don't talk that way. Those are stout words. Those words can be summarized. It is vain to serve God, meaning it is worthless or it is profitless. It's empty. It's nothing to serve God. Oh, oh no. It is precious, worthwhile, valuable, and the most important thing you will ever do to serve God. It's vain to serve God. See, these people were showing up at church. They were dropping a few bucks in the plate, and they thought that God should bless them more than He had been blessing them. So they had concluded, because our circumstances are so pitiful, it must be vain to serve God. There's really no value in serving the Lord of hosts. In fact, When we look around this city, we see the proud, those proud people that speak the most against the Lord, those proud people that have the least humility and service toward others, we call them happy because look at their lives, they're being blessed. Are you with me? This is what the verse means. I'm giving you the sense of it. Verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. You prophets come along and drum us and drum us and drum us with God's Word about how we ought to be obeying, but when we do show up at church, when we do drop a few bucks in the offering plate, nothing really works out, and the things don't get better. And when we look around town, those that don't even show up, they're making more money than we are. We call the proud happy. 
We're not happy, but the proud are happy. We see those that work wickedness, and they're set up. They get promoted. They rise up the ranks. And those that tempt God, they're even delivered. When there's close calls, and when there's risky situations, they're protected. Have the people of God ever talked like this? Well, they did in Malachi's day. Have you ever heard the people of God talk like this? Have you ever talked like this? I don't think it makes any difference. I don't think it makes any difference that we go to a church that worries about dotting their I's and crossing their T's. I don't think it makes any difference that we go to a church that cares about details. I see people that don't care about details and that love Jesus and they're happier and more blessed and wealthier than my family is. Anybody ever think like that? Well, if that's the case, then it must be vain to serve God. Let's just boil it down and get to the bottom line of what your idiotic mind is saying. You're probably too stupid to figure out the bottom line, so I'll give it to you. It is vain to serve God. That's what you're saying. Because these people that don't serve God carefully, they're being more abundantly blessed. I, who am serving God more carefully, appear to be blessed less abundantly. Therefore, it must not be worth it to serve God. He must not care. And the prophet Malachi came along to call those kind of words stout words. Now, who else in the Bible has a stout look about him? I want to, uh, does anybody know the word of God? Be careful. The, the man of sin. The book of Daniel. Does somebody want to make me real happy with the chapter? Oh, yes. It's a good day in the house of the Lord. Daniel chapter 7. The little horn that grew out of the Roman Empire. After that empire degenerated into ten nations, that little horn had a stout look. The popes of Rome. Do they have a stout look? Have you ever seen St. Peter's seat? Way, way up there on the wall. They couldn't get there with a 150 foot cherry picker. Have you ever seen that seat? In the Vatican, unbelievable. Sitting high above the the high altar of the Catholic Church to the worship of God. That high altar that has snaky columns holding that canopy over it. That man, the Bible says, has a stout look about him. Well, anyway, when you think that God does not bless those who are righteous and God does not judge those who are wicked, then you are saying that God's worship is vain. That serving the Lord is a vain thing. It is not a vain thing. It will bless you in every part of your life now, and it will bless you in the world to come. And somebody will say to me, well, what about Anthony Ricini? And I'll say, what a blessed life he had. He got to give the greatest offering to the Lord, and he is closer to the Lord than you'll ever be when you get to heaven. You'll have to look over him. You'll have to ask for a stepladder to be able to see over him, and you'll have to push trying to get your way around him because he's going to be closer to the Lord than you are because he gave his life as a martyr. To be able to give your life as a martyr and not feel the pain of them putting you to death and not to have the fear of thinking about dying when you know that you're going to die when you're laying there on that plank between two boats that have pulled out from Venice and they're about to separate and let you plunge to the bottom with that chain tied to a great rock, chained to a great rock, 
for that not to cause you any fear, for you to have great peace in the Lord, for you to be singing, for you to be forgiving your tormentors, that is a blessed life. What do you think is blessed? Being able to move up from Hibachi Grill to Outback Steakhouse? Hello? What do you think is a blessed life? That is a blessed life. Lord, your, your worship is not vain at all. Amen. Who, who succumbed to this in the book of Psalms? Asaph. Can somebody tell me the psalm? Oh, it's a good day in the house of the Lord. Psalm 73. Asaph succumbed to the fact that when he looked around, he saw that all the wicked were fat and happy. And he about gave up until he went into the house of the Lord and heard a wild John the Baptist lookalike preach from Malachi chapter 3. And then he realized that the worship of God is not vain. That those are stout words and we should never thank them, we should never hear them. And if we ever hear them, we should never say them, we should never thank them. And if we ever hear them from someone else, we should correct them. You're sounding like the Pope. That just might be a simple way for you to say it. You sound like the Pope. Your words are stout against me, saith the Lord. And they say, where have we spoken so much against thee? Because you're saying that the wicked are being blessed, that the righteous are not being blessed, and that it doesn't matter whether you serve God or not. That's lesson number eight. May God save us from that. Now there's a different category. Verses 16 through 18 are lesson nine. Then they that feared the Lord. These weren't speaking stoutly against the Lord. These people feared the Lord. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Praise the Lord. Here's a group of people that are different. There was a division in the nation. There's always been a division. There's always been the righteous and there's always been the wicked. In the days of Noah, there there was Noah and then there was the rest. You know, when God was kind to Noah and let him take along seven others, there's not one good thing said about any of them. Because the Bible tells us by faith Noah built that ark to the saving of his household. It doesn't say anything about Mrs. Noah or their three sons or their three sons' wives. But there's been a division always. And while there are these people that speak stoutly in verses 13 through 15, these people that don't give and go away from God's ordinances in verses 7 through 12, and while there were those committing treachery against their wives, there were others that feared God. And then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And when times get worse, those that fear God ought to speak more often one to another. Because the times are bad, we need more encouragement than at other times. You have already heard this morning as well, by God's providential arrangement of what you've heard from Hebrews chapter 3, that while it is called today, we ought to exhort one another daily. Lest we be hardened by sin and depart from the living God. And so these people did that. As things get worse, are we living in times that are getting worse? Are we living in the perilous times of the last days? Does it say in that description of the perilous times that evil seducers shall wax worse and worse? As things get worse and worse, and there are fewer and fewer Christians holding to the ancient landmarks of God's Scripture, and as there are more people that give lip service to Jesus, and He pours out blessings on them, and they get promoted right past you on the job, It's time for us to come together into assemblies like this and encourage and exhort one another in the Lord. Because it is not vain. 
to serve the Lord. Now the negative part were these stout words of these people that were so blind when they looked around, all they could see were a few temporary circumstances. After the Lord got done with these Jews by Antiochus IV of Syria, known as Antiochus Epiphanes, how much did the rich have? And what did they have when Titus, Vespasian, Caesar, assaulted their city in 70 A.D.? They lost it all. They lost everything. Temporary success proves nothing. Look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. You have got to learn how to have a better perspective. Wisdom is knowing how to look at things. True judgment is not judging by appearance, but judging righteous judgment. Verse 34 of Psalm 37. Wait on the Lord and keep His way. This is, these are the ordinances of God, what He wants you to do in your life. Wait on the Lord and keep His way. And He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. Now is that a true statement or a false statement? Is that a true statement? Do you believe it? Then wait on the Lord, keep His way, and He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. See, the wicked may be inheriting the land right now, but the Lord's going to cut them off. The Lord's going to make a difference. There's going to be a great reversal of fortune for us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That reversal of fortune is incomprehensible. It is indescribable. It is incalculable. How can we calculate it? The wicked, no matter how rich in this world, will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal torment. The righteous, no matter how poor in this earth, even like Lazarus who had his sores licked by dogs at the gate of the rich man, will be on a white horse riding behind the Lord of glory and judging angels. That is a reversal of fortune for keeping his way. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. The psalmist goes on to say, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away and lo, he was not. He disappeared. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man. Go ahead. Sometimes we say mark the calendar, like Haggai chapter 2 or Psalm 37. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in a time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him which traces us right back to verse 34. Wait on the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. Don't look out there with some short-term perspective of seeing some prosperity on the wicked. Back to Malachi chapter 3. Those that fear the Lord need to speak often to one another. It says that in verse 16 of Malachi chapter 3. The fear of the Lord is the reverent care for His worship and the delight of His person. If you fear God, you delight in God Himself personally, and you keep His commandments. And you have reverent care for how He is worshipped. These God-fearing people, so far from thinking that the worship of God or serving God was vain, they spake often one to another. Often. Not just on the Lord's Day. Not just at church. Often 
one to another. It's the greatest subject there is to talk about. The Lord of glory. Any aspect of it. We study the book of Malachi. There's wonderful things to talk about in there. You go to Matthew 3, you go to Romans 16. It doesn't matter what chapter you enter into. If you stop, slow down, and meditate upon the things of God there, there are wonderful things to talk about. And they spake often one to another. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. How costly is that? To speak often to one another about the things of the Lord? It doesn't cost. So he's, he's kind of got off the giving bandwagon, hasn't he? Just... You know, they say talk is cheap, but this is sincere talk. This is good talk. This is talking about the Lord. One to another. May God bless this church to be a church that always wants to talk about the things of the Lord to each other. You know, there are still people that sit in here that you can't ever get anything out of them about the Lord because they never think about the Lord. They talk about their jobs. They talk about their health. They talk about politics. They talk about diet. They talk about all these ridiculous, entirely worthless subjects that have no value in time or eternity. But where's the talk about the things of the Lord? We want to be a church that is known for speaking often one to another about the Lord. Because look what it says. Now, is it vain to serve the Lord? What does it say next? And the Lord hearkened. The Lord hearkened. The Lord said, what's going on down there? And heard it. Look at these words, the Lord hearkened. And heard it. And a book of remembrance was written. Was it just angels in the back corner? Was it, at, was it angels at another location where they had their overhead departments? Where there was an accounting department that was keeping a book? That there were some people talking about the Lord? What does it say here? Where was the book being written? Where was a scribe writing in this book the names of people that talked to each other often about the Lord? It was before him. Right. In his presence. In his sight, they got out a book of remembrance and they began writing down the names of the people. This isn't the book of life. This is the book of God's blessings. The book of his remembrance of those that have been faithful to him, of those that love him, that those, those that delight in him, and those that speak often to others about him. And their names were written down. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Do you love the name of the Lord of hosts? I haven't even brought that point up today because of this point here. I just brought that point up because I love the name of the Lord of hosts. Do you love the name of the Lord of hosts? That He's the captain of the armies of heaven? When He goes forward, do you know how many millions follow Him? Listen, the biggest army that we've ever put together in one place is 500,000 in Desert Storm 20 years or so ago. What did the Ethiopians bring against Asa? One million. How many angels are there? What's 10,000 times 10,000? 100 million. When he goes forward, the armies of heaven follow. Nebuchadnezzar even said that he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. How long could you talk and how long could you get delight out of just the name Lord of hosts where Lord is capital L-O-R-D? Can you get more than 10 seconds out of it? Just that, his name. How about the name of Jesus? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is what? Lord. Lord? What kind of Lord? The ruler of the universe. Right. Far above all principality and power. 
Do you love to talk about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love what He did to His enemies in 70 A.D.? Did He fulfill every prophecy He ever made to them? Gloriously so. Look at this. Is it vain to serve God? So here you are on earth, and a wicked person gets promoted by you on the job. And you go home wringing your hands. Well, what the pastor's preaching to us on Wednesday night about getting ahead in the job just doesn't work. It's vain to serve the Lord. The proud are the happy ones in America. The wicked are the ones that get promoted. And those that tempt God get delivered and protected. Doesn't make any sense. There's no value in it. Then you have verse 16. See, that's out of your sight unless you read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you don't know what else is going on in the universe. Do you know what you're looking at? You're looking at a few pieces of coin. You are so idiotic, lacking in intelligence, it is sickening that you or I or anyone else would ever look at a few pieces of coin and think that that is an advantage. Do you know what the advantage is? Verse 16. There's a book of remembrance that's being written in the full view of Almighty God with your name being written in it because you have thought upon His name and because you fear Him. And what will happen if your name's in the book? They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. We are the diad, the church of Jesus Christ is the diadem of the Lord of glory. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. When a man has a son that serves him and works in the family business and promotes the family name and promotes the father's last name, that is a wonderful thing. And here, the prophet is saying, I will spare these ones whose names I have written in the book of remembrance in the day when I bring judgment on this land and these people that have spoken so stoutly and these people that won't keep my ordinances, when I bring judgment upon them, I will spare these that I have written down. Now is that an advantage? Is it vain to serve God? Or is it wonderful to serve God? To have your name written in the book of remembrance? I want God to remember me. The righteous won't be able to remember, but when they're standing at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, His sheep and the goats are at His left hand on their way to an everlasting hell, the righteous on His right hand will say, Lord, when did we ever do anything for You? And He'll remind them of every little thing they had done for the least of these His brethren. Because a book of remembrance was written for them. And so is it vain to serve God? It is wonderful to serve God. It's the only way to live now, and it's the only way to have evidence of eternal life for then. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them. Now how can you spare someone unless something else is happening at the same time? How is he going to spare them? Because he was going to bring fiery judgment upon that nation, the likes of which the world had never seen and has never seen. The tribulation at the destruction of Jerusalem was the worst tribulation that's ever taken place in this world. There is nothing to be compared to it. What did you find in your history books, children? Did they try to tell you something bad happened at Nagasaki? Did they try to tell you that something bad happened at 
Hiroshima, 75,000 with no pain, just a blinding flash of light and they were gone. How about 1.1 million inside the city walls of Jerusalem killed by each other, family included, and starving to death and eating their own children because of the Roman siege? The city only held a couple hundred thousand people, but they were there for a feast day and they were all locked in by the Roman legions coming upon them all of a surprise. Jesus said there had never been such tribulation to that time in the world and there never would be after it. No one city has ever suffered like the city of Jerusalem suffered because they did not know their visit, the time of their visitation by the Lord of glory. The Lord brought that upon that city of Jerusalem and Malachi chapter 4 is about that destruction. But in that time, when that, when that vengeance was falling upon that city, do you know what it says in Luke chapter 21? It says that all things that are written in, in the law and the prophets in the way of vengeance might be fulfilled. God poured out his wrath upon those Jews that crucified his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and burned their city to the ground, and they drew plows across that place until they tore up even the foundations of that temple. Because Jesus, the last time he walked out of that temple in Matthew 23 and verse 38 said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And he made a new house. And you know what the new house is? You're in it right now. The house and church of the living God. Taken over by Gentiles. The tabernacle of David. With the son of David reigning on the throne of glory. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. There were special ones that God preserved and protected in the judgment that he brought down upon the Jewish nation. I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. The best historian that we know from that period of time is Eusebius. And he says that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, but they all escaped between the siege that was laid by Cestius Gallus in 66 A.D. And then when Titus came in the spring of 70 A.D., they all escaped and went to a city called Pella on the other side of the Jordan River. And not a single one perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. They were my jewels. And I will preserve them and spare them. when he miserably destroyed those wicked men, Matthew chapter 21, and burned up their city, Matthew chapter 22. It's a glorious event of history, and it makes me sick, and it makes me angry that so few know anything about it. The vast majority of Christians do not have the foggiest idea about anything regarding the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the ruin of the Jewish nation by the Romans around 70 A.D. And yet... You can't understand great chunks of the Bible without knowing about that event, including these last two chapters. Because this chapter started out with John the Baptist in Matthew, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me, and that me is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. But look what verse 2 says, who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? Verse 5, I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, and other sins that are mentioned there. But when that judgment was falling upon the nation of Israel, were there Hebrews that Paul addressed? Were there Hebrews that Peter wrote? Were there 12 tribes scattered abroad that James addressed in James chapter 1 and verse 1? They were his jewels. And so in the midst 
of the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen fall upon a people, there were jewels preserved and kept. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth them. Now, how did they get spared? What's the context of our ninth lesson here? They spake often one to another about the Lord. They loved the Lord and they loved His things and they spoke to each other and they thought upon His name and they feared Him. And God writes them in the book of remembrance so that when His judgment is falling, it doesn't fall upon them. Do you remember Ezekiel chapter 9? God called some of the mightiest angels in heaven to Him and He told them to bring their weapons of slaughter. It's so amusing to read the news in our society. They have, they have this little designation, WMD. What do they mean by WMD? Weapons of mass destruction. Are you kidding me? They think they have weapons of mass destruction? God called his angels in Ezekiel chapter 9 and said, bring your weapons of slaughter. And, hey, you, angel, come here. Take this inkhorn and go through the city of Jerusalem and from your inkhorn put a mark on the foreheads of all those that sigh by reason of the wickedness that is in Jerusalem. Put a mark on their foreheads. Now you angels with your weapons of slaughter go through this city from one side to another and if they don't have a mark on their foreheads, slaughter them. Ezekiel chapter 9. That's the whole story. Just graphic detail there. And it's a wonderful lesson. Because God has his angels with inkhorns going around looking for those that love him, talk about him, think upon his name, fear him, and they get marked. They will be my jewels, and I will spare them when I drop my judgment on the wicked. Verse 18, Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And those Jews from Pella recrossed the Jordan River and came back into Judea. And do you know what Jerusalem was? Ashes under their feet, as verse 3 of chapter 4 describes. And they knew that the God of heaven had made a difference that is almost unspeakable in its magnitude of wiping out so many wicked with such suffering and such violence and such severity that there was nothing left of the city of Jerusalem but heaps. To anyone that had ever seen it, they could not believe what the Romans did to that place before they left it. But the Lord had his jewels. Now the question that we need to end with today is very simple. Who are his jewels? Or let's make it more personal. Are you one of his jewels? How do I know if I'm one of his jewels? How often do you talk to others about the Lord? It's not how often do you talk to others. It's how often do you talk to others about the Lord. How often do you think on his name? How excited do you get about him? How much do you fear him? How much reverence is there in you toward him? How much delight do you have in him? If you delight in him and speak of him and fear him and think upon his name and speak of him to others and get excited about the things of God's word that describe his glory, your name is in the book of remembrance. And if it's in the book of remembrance, it's also in the book of life. You're going to be spared in this life, and you're going to be spared in the great day of judgment that's coming. Let us humble ourselves before this passage. Let's remember that we want to keep all the ordinances of God from verse 7. 
We want to give and realize that if we don't, we rob God. Let's not have stout words against Him, like verses 13 through 15. Let us not have anything in our life that looks like we think the worship of God is vain. Let's speak often one to another. Let's encourage each other to truly love the Lord. He'll write our names down before Him, and He'll spare us and bless us. And He's he's sparing us already. Or don't you know that? That we're in a church like this that has so much of His truth when so few others have it. We are already blessed, and there's far greater blessing to come. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.